Amen. Please be seated. So, yeah, children ages four through um, third grade can go to Children's Chapel if they want to. Uh, you can go with uh, Mr. Olchi or Mrs. Pope back there. You can turn your Bible um, to Acts chapter 19, looking at verses 11 through 20 this morning. And the text is also printed in the bulletin for you on the next page. Acts 19. So uh, next week is uh, Palm Sunday, and it's going to be our last Sunday uh, going through the book of Acts. We started that sometime last fall, and we've kind of been uh, racing through, not covering everything, but um, touching on some uh, important passages. And then uh, Easter Sunday, we're going to start a short three-week series where we'll look at the resurrection of Jesus and... um, and some different pictures of the resurrection that we see in the Bible. And uh, don't quote me on this, but I'm leaning toward doing a uh, series in the book of Proverbs um, after that. Um, So, this morning, we're in Acts 19. The context is Paul's uh, third missionary journey, uh, particularly the two years in the mid-50s that he spent in Ephesus, the ruins of which are on the the west coast of um, modern-day Turkey. And our passage uh, uh, focuses on some of the effects of the gospel in Ephesus, how a a personal connection to Jesus by faith changes lives. Pretty simple, straightforward. Uh, Let's pray, and then we'll uh, get into the passage. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We ask as um, we come to your word that your spirit would be given in greater measure to us to clear the fog away from our minds, to uh, renew our hearts, to shape us and change us, to be more like Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there was a lot of weird stuff going on in ancient Ephesus Uh, They had a real fascination with the supernatural. Uh, People there believed in things like magic and demons. 
and they looked to the supernatural for protection. Many of their books contained uh, secret spells with words of power to uh, ward off evil spirits. In fact, Ephesus was home to the third largest library in the world, I think, um, much of which was devoted to the occult, uh, so so that, you know, books on magic were uh, commonly called Ephesian letters. Um, Now, the Bible is a very realistic book. The Bible knows us very well. The Bible knows the world that we live in. It tells us things about ourselves and about the world that are often so painfully true we'd um, actually prefer to ignore what the Bible says. It speaks to us in a way that's like pulling a veil away from something that is uh, hidden. It reveals what's really going on inside of our hearts and all around us. And when it comes to this crazy passage about... uh, miraculous handkerchiefs and an exorcism that backfired and a public burning of books of spells by former magicians, uh, we in modern society might expect it to say something a little different from what it actually says. Uh, we, we think if the Bible is true and it accurately reflects uh, uh, truth and, and reality the way it's supposed to be, it probably should debunk the obvious myths that are found here, right? Uh, obvious myths. Uh, pieces of cloth don't have magical powers to heal people, right? Um, There are no such things as demons and magic. But the Bible doesn't label these things as fictitious simply because they're outside of the ordinary experience of people. Um, In fact, the things that happen in our passage and in a lot of places in the New Testament have been outside of the ordinary experience of most people everywhere throughout history. Um, The reason why these extraordinary things took place was because God was at work in a special way confirming the truth of his gospel. In the last verse, uh, we see the result of the events of this passage. In verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So God's word, the gospel, it got bigger and stronger because of these extraordinary events. Um, We've talked about signs and wonders before. Jesus and the apostles performed them in order to demonstrate the, that their message, their gospel, was truly from God because only someone who was backed by God himself could do these kinds of things. So it says in verse 11 and 12, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So um, the Apostle Paul was ministering in Ephesus, and he had a day job, making tents, thus the handkerchiefs and aprons, probably. Uh, and maybe he didn't have enough time to get around and see everyone, right? Um, or maybe people were sneaking away with his personal items without his knowledge. Uh, but they were being carried to the sick and to the demon-possessed, and those people were being restored to health and freedom, and that seems pretty strange to us. <laughs> but, um, but we've seen it in the Bible before, basically, right? The, the woman with the flow of blood uh, touched Jesus' garment. She didn't ask him first. She didn't verbalize her faith or uh, ask Jesus to heal her. She touched Jesus' garment, and she was healed. 
And then Jesus turned around and said, Go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Your faith has made you well. Earlier in Acts chapter 5, people carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats so that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. So the thread that ties these very strange (laughs) miracles together is that people believed in God's willingness to heal them. They believed that God might just have mercy on them, and they wanted to have a connection, any connection, to his grace, even if it's as tenuous as the touch of cloth or a passing of a shadow. Some connection to God's grace. And in each case, God confirmed that he is indeed gracious by granting healing or freedom from evil spirits. Now, some people wanted the benefits of such supernatural power without the personal faith connection to God through Jesus Christ. Um, In Acts chapter 8, there was a magician named Simon who wanted to buy the Holy Spirit from the apostles so that he could become a first-rate healer like the apostles. Um, He was rebuked. for wanting um, to use God for his own selfish purposes. Well, the same thing is going on here with the seven sons of Sceva. Uh, In those days, it was pretty common for religious charlatans to take financial advantage of people by providing uh, spiritual services, by uh, doing things like um, fancy exorcism rituals. Uh, Come to think of it, that's pretty common in our day still. Uh, Turn on the television. Um, But you can imagine the show that these seven brothers, seven Jewish brothers, could put on in this exorcism. Now, these guys have seen the things that the Apostle Paul can do. And they think the name of Jesus has some serious juice behind it, right? And they want a piece of the action. So some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, to name the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So they wanted the benefits of God's power without believing in the one that his power was pointing to. Uh, Remember, the miracles are signs. They're signs that point to the truth of the gospel. The miracles vindicate Jesus as Savior and Lord. They prove the life-transforming love that God has toward those who know their need for his grace. And, um, and they attest to, they're a, they're a foretaste of the ultimate healing, the ultimate freedom, the resurrection in the new heavens and the new earth. You can't have the benefits of a relationship with God unless you have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's Uh, what it says next in verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit uh, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Um, Dennis Johnson says this in his commentary. Those who attempted to use Jesus' name without a commitment to his authority found themselves overpowered. Invincible power resided in the name of Lord Jesus, but its benefits could not be received apart from faith in him. This is 
like a scene from some TV show where a, a demon-possessed person has uh, violent superhuman strength enough to beat the tar out of seven grown men, tear their clothes off, and beat them to a pulp so that they're all running out of the house uh, away from him. Uh, the seven sons of Sceva, they suffered uh, a painful, almost deadly humiliation because they tried to use the name of Jesus like some incantation, right? Like like a, a magical talisman, a spiritual word of power. But they had no personal connection to the real Jesus. And people were not confused by this. Right? They were not confused by the events. They knew exactly what this meant. Verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. That, um, at first confused me a bit. Um, so the demon successfully resisted exorcism in Jesus' name, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It seemed like the name of the Lord Jesus failed. The enemy of God, a demon, won a battle with seven exorcists, and God received glory for it? Um, it's because people saw that the name of Jesus was powerful, right? Enough to truly heal the sick and to free the oppressed, which they've seen before. But that God is not messing around when it comes to faith. He's not messing around when it comes to faith in his son. G.K. Chesterton, the, the quote that was uh, in the beginning of the bulletin there said, There is something in the world more mystical than darkness and stronger than strong fear. And that can be disconcerting, or that can be tremendously comforting, depending on your relationship to that something. Right? Um, if you don't put your faith in Jesus, his power won't do you any good. If you don't genuinely call on him as Lord and Savior, then you're still in the grip of the evil forces of this world. You're in the domain of darkness, with no hope of freedom apart from a personal connection to Jesus by faith. But, on the other hand, all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. They'll find freedom from sin, freedom from the devil himself as a free gift of God's grace. There is absolutely life-changing power in the name of Jesus Christ, in the good news about who he is and about what he's done for you. Jesus is the first one in all the Bible to cast out demons. He has complete authority over the spiritual world, over, over the devil and his minions. Jesus resisted all the devil's temptations, and he triumphed over him by his perfect self-sacrificial love at the cross, where he laid down his life for you, taking your place under God's wrath, even though you didn't deserve that, even though he didn't have to do that. Colossians 1, Paul says, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So because of Jesus that you have um, freedom from the power of sin, freedom from the power of the prince of this world. The devil is no longer your master. And this is only true for you if you're connected to Jesus by faith. If you've repented, you've turned away from the darkness to the light, if you've flung yourself on him for his mercy as he's offered to you in the gospel. 
And that's the response that we see in the people of Ephesus, who converted from the occult and converted to Christ. Verses 18 and 19. Many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So this is a... um, it's a confession and a repentance, right? It's a public, interpersonal, earnest, costly confession and repentance. David Peterson says this, Apparently they were moved by the exposure and overcoming of the exorcists to realize that their own previous involvement with the magic arts now needed to be acknowledged. Perhaps they had kept the scrolls in which spells were written as an insurance policy, in case their newfound faith proved to be inadequate in some situation. Burning the scrolls was a way of repudiating what they contained and represented a greater trust in God to deliver them from trouble and supply their needs. These people recognized that genuine discipleship involved letting go what they treasured in order to enjoy the blessings of God's kingdom. They were repudiating their former way of life, giving up things that they had wrongly treasured in God's place, giving up things that they thought would protect them before, giving up even the monetary value of those things, which was great. Um, The silver pieces, probably uh, drachmas, roughly a day's wage, translate that into uh, uh, somebody who has a $15 an hour job, and that's about $6 million uh, in today's currency. They were putting all their eggs into one basket, so to say. They were trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, for their help, for their future. And they kept no fallback plan for themselves, just in case this Christianity thing didn't really work out. You can't can't manage and diversify your spiritual portfolio, keeping the one true God in one compartment for some things, while holding on to the promises of false gods for other things. There are no other gods. There is only one God. There is no other way to true freedom. Divine intimacy, eternal life, full joy, all the benefits of salvation only come through personal faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ when you have a relationship with the one true God through him. There is no room for religious pluralism or syncretism where Jesus is uh, one God among many legitimate gods, where we can have Jesus and Wicca to get us what we want, or we can have Jesus and wealth for our sense of security. Dennis Johnson says that the saving power of the gospel in the hands of Paul, Jesus' faithful servant, in combination with the failure of Sceva's sons to tap Jesus' power without allegiance to his authority, convinced Ephesian believers that they could not maintain dual loyalties. It's like the Old Testament reading from 1 Kings 18, where the prophet of God says, why do you go limping between two opinions? You cannot maintain dual loyalties. Jesus turned the world upside down when he came into it 2,000 years ago, and he turns your life upside down if he's going to be a part of it. Those who trust in him must trust in him alone for their ultimate good. He calls for your undivided allegiance. 
your undivided loyalty. And this is a struggle for us, right? It's a struggle to give our undivided loyalty to him since we're, we're so prone to look for our good in anything but Jesus, right? That's why our life needs to be one of constant repentance and faith. Constant. We need to pray that God would constantly pull back the curtains, constantly reveal to us the things that we're clinging to for life so that we can turn away from those things as the false gods that they are and call on the name of the Lord Jesus for life. We need to confess and divulge our practices to one another. It might not be as fun as a, a public book burning, right? Um, but when you confess your sins to a friend that you can trust, your allegiances to false gods are exposed and shrivel up and die. It's like when you uh, throw open the windows to a dark, damp, moldy place and let the light and the fresh air in that, that kills the mold. And we need to confess our sins to one another and we need to actively sever the loyalties that we have to other gods. We need to throw them into the fire, as it were. Um, even at great expense. Rejecting the god of wealth might look like giving more money away. Uh, when by doing that you're saying, money, you don't have a grip on me. I don't need you. Because the one true God gives me everything that I need. I'm not going to serve you. Uh, or rejecting the God of wealth might look like becoming more honest in the workplace. Uh, even if it means you lose your job because you refuse to bend the knee to the almighty dollar. Right? Do whatever it takes to get that next buck. Um, sometimes repentance is costly. But in a sense, uh, it, it isn't even a sacrifice. Right? Because the one who turns from false gods to the one true God gains honor, gains immortality, gains eternal life as a free gift of God's grace through Jesus Christ. This comes through faith in Christ alone, so put your faith in him, give your full allegiance to him, and if you've never done that before, come and talk to me about it. I'd love to talk to you about it. Right, now let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, uh, we come to you this morning as people who still struggle with unbelief, people who still give our hearts to um, false gods, whether they're uh, intrinsically evil things or even intrinsically good things, anything but you makes a terrible God. And so we pray, uh, whoever we are, if we come to you for the first time this morning or if we come to you uh, for the thousandth time this morning, we pray that you would convert our hearts, that you would grant us faith that you would convert our hearts more deeply so that we would cling to Jesus more and more for all of our life, for all of our hope, for all of our future, for our needs, uh, even for our pleasures. Would you help us to find um, all of your fullness in Jesus Christ alone by faith? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>